Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. In episode two of this two-episode series, we asked the question, should quantitative hepatitis B surface antigen testing be used routinely in clinical practice for patients with chronic hepatitis B? Joining us are Dr. Paul Kuo from Stanford University School of Medicine, Dr. Tatiana Kushner from Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and Dr. Ira Jacobson from NYU Langone Health. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear Dr. Kushner describe the use of quantitative hepatitis B surface antigen testing, as well as other biomarkers in clinical practice. So why do we need additional biomarkers? So we have our HBV DNA, we have our ALT, uh, we have these other virologic uh, biomarkers, but really these biomarkers have limitations in predicting true clinical outcomes, as we'll see, particularly in certain subpopulations. Really, our gold standard, what we would like to do is to assess a CCC DNA, and that would give us an understanding of the full understanding of HBV replication and transcriptional activity. But to get at that, it really would require potentially invasive procedures, and we need novel biomarkers that can act as a surrogate that measure CCC DNA. And that's where quantitative surface antigen enters the picture. So quantitative surface antigen, so that's quantitative, meaning you're able to detect the level of surface antigen as opposed to binary, reactive, or not. It is an assay that's available from different uh, diagnostic companies. Uh, there's a World Health Organization international standard for it. And it is a marker of transcriptional activity of CCC DNA. There are important nuances to know about it uh, because actually it detects all three forms of circulating hepatitis B surface antigen, but and does not always correlate with viral replicative activity because not only does it reflect CCC DNA, but it also reflects uh, surface antigen expression from integrated HBV DNA. And generally, we think of more integrations occur in e-antigen negative patients. And so we see that this uh, becomes really an important marker, in particular, as I'll demonstrate later, in uh, e-antigen negative patients who have more integrated DNA. And uh, surface antigen levels fluctuate uh, during the hepatitis B disease course. But earlier, we mentioned that hepatitis B DNA levels really fluctuate on a very consistently, and it's not a very static level. So on, even on a week-to-week basis, HBV DNA levels may be different. Surface antigen is a little bit more stable. And that's one of the reasons why quantitative surface antigen can be beneficial, because it's a, a more stable marker of disease. And it varies in terms of level, depending on where you are. So Acute hepatitis B uh, patients tend to have higher levels of surface antigen, whereas in chronic hepatitis B, the majority are less than four logs and over 90% of people. And we've learned over time, the hepatitis B surface antigen quantification gives us a better idea of who truly is an inactive carrier of hepatitis B. We've learned that in patients who have surface antigen titers of less than 1,000, they are much more likely to be inactive carriers. And furthermore, hepatitis B surface antigen titers less than 100 increases the specificity of identifying these inactive carriers, but reduces sensitivity. So these two numbers are numbers that are kind of recurring themes in many of the studies that look at quantitative surface antigen, the 100 cutoff and the 1,000 cutoff. 
So what can we use it for potentially in clinical practice? Well, I think it really can be used to individualize our approach and our discussions with our patients because really it provides more data on the disease state and prognosis. So it has prognostic value. It can really identify true inactive hepatitis B carriers. So that can inform your decision potentially about who's inactive and who you may consider potentially stopping treatment or who you may avoid starting treatment because they're inactive. Also, it can be used to monitor response to treatment. So we've seen this in uh, patients on pegylator interferon. So it can provide an early stopping rule in patients who are not responding, or it can provide a prognosis in terms of who is more likely to respond if you can monitor the surface antigen titers. And again, this is particularly relevant to pegylator interferon that has uh, more of an effect on surface antigen titers than nukes and nucleotide analogs, but will, as we'll demonstrate, have even more relevance in the new drugs that are uh, being developed. And uh, surface antigen titers can predict surface antigen loss. So if you have low uh, surface antigen uh, titers in certain individuals, then you may counsel them that they be, may be more likely to have functional cure. They may have surface antigen loss. Quantitative surface antigen does provide additional data on inactive hepatitis B status and prognosis, in particular among those E-antigen negative patients that are in the gray zone. Quantitative surface antigen can be a valuable tool when evaluating patients in the gray zone to really determine if they're true inactive carriers, and in that context can really help inform the treatment decision, whether you decide to offer treatment or whether you say, actually, you're an inactive carrier and you may do well without treatment. It has prognostic value and can inform those discussions when, when patients perhaps are worried about treatment or don't really see the benefit of treatment. You can look at the quantitative surface antigen to share data with them about their potential increased risk of HCC and cirrhosis development. An informed discussion with the patient can include the result of a quantitative surface antigen to really help with this uh, joint decision making in order to determine who needs to be treated, but also if they want to stop treatment to uh, inform the discussion of potential risk of flare and or the durability of response long-term. And I think really as we study the new drug mechanisms that work specifically or indirectly on surface antigen reduction, quantitative surface antigen measurements really become a, a, a critical part of uh, monitoring and treatment assessment. So let's just talk a little bit about just this quantitative surface antigen, which is the biomarker. Tatiana, do you think we have all the biomarkers that we need now, or do you think we're evolving to using quantitative surface antigen? What are some of the other biomarkers that you think are probably going to be helpful moving forward to help us best counsel our patients and guide treatment decisions? Yeah, I, I mean, I think reviewing the literature on the quantitative surface antigen, uh, you know, I, it really did bring to my attention that what we have now is not sufficient. And in particular, this idea that the HPV DNA really just fluctuates a lot and we're not getting an accurate picture of the chronic disease state. And that in, in certain subpopulations, actually, the surface antigen does better, uh, quantitative surface antigen does better than uh, the HPV DNA. So I, I do think that there's a, a role for additional biomarkers. I think the quantitative surface antigen is ahead of the other, other ones, and, and it is available. So I think if we start somewhere, we should start with this. But there are also others that are being investigated, but more in the research context. Yeah. With regard to hepatitis B surface antigen, IRA comes from two sources. Right. And one of the, especially as one gets down, is surface antigen levels can get lower with treatment. 
how do you think, what are the assays, if you could design your ideal surface antigen assay, IRA, that you could share and help guide, what would that consist of, your report? Say you're seeing it as a report. Well, without making any claim to having any of the uh, knowledge about how to design the assay, I know what assay I would design or engage with scientists to design. Yes. And there are many attempts going on right now. So the, the essential biological message here is that starting with observations that I believe came from the Arrowhead siRNA study, first in chimps, the discovery has now become commonplace, commonly known that in e-antigen-positive patients, most of the uh, surface antigen is coming off the CCC DNA, uh, which is obviously transcribed into messenger RNA and so on. And in e-negative patients, much or most of it, depending on the patient, obviously there's some range, comes from the integrated DNA. Because when the integrated, when the viral genome is inserted, it's only inserted in terms of the, only the S portion of the genome. And according to some data, the X portion, but not the rest. There's no whole genome. It's not like retrovirus and provirus with uh, HIV, where you can read off whole genome from integrated uh, genetic material. But the S protein is certainly read off uh, the integrated DNA, and that is preponderant, it seems, in E-negative patients. And, and they're not quite the same. I, I only get this from the scientists who I listen to in the papers that I read. I'm not a laboratory person. But if we could devise assays to distinguish between the two, and again, there are many efforts underway, this would be a major step forward in the field. Because what we want to know as we develop our novel agents, and of course there are many such classes, we want to know whether we're making the greatest inroads against CCC-derived DNA, HBSAG, excuse me, uh, or integrated-derived uh, uh, HBSAG, coming from integrands, as they're called. That might actually define what success means. The concept has now become prevalent that we might one day have to settle in patients, most of whose SAG was coming off integrated DNA, with eradicating all the CCC DNA, making reactivation impossible, and thereby enabling patients to get off therapy, but might have to settle conceivably at least, conceptually, with the patients being eternally HBSAG positive, because we don't know how to get rid of integrated DNA. Um, and therefore, we don't have to get rid of the S antigen right off of that. And of course, in the clinic, some patients who are E negative do clear SAG, and we just don't understand the dynamics of what's going on. So this has become a very, very important concept. I, I can't sit at, uh, around a table with people developing novel drugs nowadays where this discuss discussion doesn't regularly come up. Agree. So, Tatiana, if you get a call from a colleague and they say, hey, I have a patient in my office, they stop their nucleoside or nucleotide, I got a quant surface antigen and it was 100. What do I do? What advice do you think you would give somebody like that? And let's first start off with somebody, let's make, let's just say they're Asian first, and then we'll say change it to whether or not they're Caucasian. Right, yeah, so first I, I would tell them that if they're ordering a test, they should know what to do with it. But, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> first things first, but, um, so, you know, what I showed that surface antigen titer less than 100 is uh, associated with more durable response, less likely uh, risk of uh, post-treatment cessation flare. Uh, so I, I would say that if their surface antigen titer is less than 100, then it is okay for them potentially to monitor them. I would still say monitor them closely, but 
uh, hopefully they could be okay off treatment. I think to our earlier discussion um, that their surface antigen titer is so low, perhaps if they stayed longer on treatment, then maybe they can fully clear it and, and it can predict functional cure. So that would be the other perspective of, well, maybe maybe then, yes, continue uh, treatment. But I think I would be more I, I would be more reassuring to that provider to say that, well, if the surface antigen titer is low, then it should be okay that the patient stop treatment. And then how do you counsel to monitor these individuals if that happens uh, in your own practice? How, how are you doing that? Have you had patients stop maybe not with a quant service antigen? Right. Yeah. So I, I think I, I rarely stop treatment. I'm, I'm worried about flares. Uh, but if I do stop treatment, then I definitely monitor them more closely than others. Um, so I would really be checking their uh, viral load and, and liver tests and perhaps a quantitative surface antigen at least on a every three-month basis, perhaps even uh, you know sooner after that initial discontinuation uh, to make sure that there's no flare. Great. Thank you so much. Ira, if you do sit down with somebody who's in the so-called, we'll use the term immunotolerant that you used in your presentation, how do you follow these individuals once you initiate therapy? Do you follow them differently than you do others? Or is it the same algorithm? Yeah, pretty much. I follow them every six months. I get a viral DNA. I get the periodic HBSAGs to see if they've cleared. Of course, the immune tolerance generally won't. And you have to prepare them for that. My last patient did clear after 10 years. I took credit for it, even though he might have done it on his own. <laughs> he was very happy. No, I, I don't really change the algorithm very much. Okay. And I do screen them for liver cancer, if I can be so bold as to be a little controversial, even though they're under 40. Okay. So every once in a while, you'll see that. Sure. And we need better biomarkers there, too, for hepatocellular carcinoma. There's no question. I mean, what we, we use AFP and ultrasound now. Better biomarkers there will be just really help us reduce the incidence of HCC. Now, if you clear E-antigen in your immune-tolerant patient, Tatiana, do you consolidate and then stop? Do you have a discussion about continuing after a period of consolidation? I know the guidance says we consolidate and stop one to three years is best, but some of us and some also continue treatment onward. Yeah, I, I honestly haven't had too many patients that have seroconverted. I, I've had a few, and I think that, you know, speaking also with other providers, even uh, if there's seroconversion, there's really a lot of hesitation to stop because, again, the, the worry for flare and uh, sero-reversion also. But uh, I am thinking one patient in particular that I met during pregnancy, she was the antigen positive, then she seroconverted uh, postpartum, and she really, 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 even from the time of pregnancy, did not want to be on treatment. And then when she seroconverted uh, and I waited for a year, I said, you know, we can consider it. And so we did. Uh, we did stop treatment. She actually did fine. We mo I monitored her very closely. I was very nervous, but she uh, she did uh, have low-level viremia, but she never sero-reverted, and uh, she didn't have a significant, clinically significant, any kind of clinically significant flare. Paul, if I could comment that, I don't, to me, it's not a question of the immune tolerance versus the others. I think maybe the question for me is, what do you do in general with your E-antigen-positive patients who clear E or seroconvert with appearance of the E-antibody? So what do you do? So I'm a three-year person. I, I, there is some literature. Harry Jansen had a paper a sure. few years ago suggesting that if you stop after a year, you'll get a little more reversion than if you wait three years. The guidelines don't say that. They say at least 12 months. But I take it out further, and I would do the same thing for an immune-tolerant patient versus somebody else who was E-positive when they started. 
And you, then you stop your therapy yes. and observe them. Yes. So I, I will continue to, I offer to continue treatment even if you've cleared e-antigen. Mm -hmm. Indefinitely? Yeah. yeah. Do you have that discussion with the patient Absolutely. and tell them? And yeah. you say, I say, I say we, here are your options. We can consolidate. You can stop now. There will probably be some viral rebound. Or we can continue to move forward. And many choose to continue, particularly younger people. Again, we've talked about some of the stigma. They like knowing that they're going to be HPV DNA long term. But we need more data in this area. Can I bring something up, Paul? Would you forgive me? <laughs> I, this inactive carrier term bothers me a little bit. Is it a biological term or is it a term that we're using operationally in the context of a practice to make practical decisions based on clinical outcomes? You showed Tatiana that between 100 and 999, the relative risk of HCC was 2.3 to 3.2 to fold, those with lower than 100. Right. That doesn't sound like a great idea to me in terms of if, if you're using it based on clinical outcomes. And yet they're clearly not inactive because they do have some virus and they have. So, so what are people talking about in the literature when they use this phrase inactive carrier? Is it biology or is it a clinical outcomes term? I mean, I think for the most part, they're, they're trying to assess the uh, viral picture at the moment and say, mm -hmm. you know, is there histologically, there, there does not appear to be any inflammation, HPV DNA is low, and, and theoretically, well, not theoretically, but data shows that long-term, prognosis-wise, they'll do better uh, or do well in terms of HCC risk and cirrhosis. But I do agree that, the you know, who's truly inactive, and yeah. perhaps it is these additional biomarkers that we need, uh, maybe not even just quantitative surface antigen to really get at the truth. And of course, we're not really doing biopsies on any of these patients anymore. So the histology is not really part of the picture for the most part. And just to go to your point, Ira, I actually think quantitative surface antigen will be very helpful in these indeterminate patients. And you wonder in some of the data you showed, and we've seen where we get outcomes that aren't good, like HCC, whether or not these are individuals who will turn out to have higher surface antigen levels. And we maybe a priori might be able to identify these individuals. More studies yet to come. I really like the way Tatiana intercalated that quantitative HPSAG question mark into the picture of the guidelines, yeah. saying that that might help decision-making in some of these great yes, zone patients. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. It was very well done. I'd like to thank Dr. Jacobson, Dr. Kushner, and Dr. Quo for that excellent discussion, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast and the full program on Time to Move the Goalposts, Examining Strategies to Advance HBV Management on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you. <laughs>